Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Andrew Reiner to talk about his book, Better Boys, Better Men, the new masculinity that creates greater courage and emotional resiliency. Andrew is a professor at Towson University, where he offers the seminar, The Changing Face of Masculinity. He's written about masculinity and men's issues for the New York Times, the Washington Post Magazine. His work's been featured on NPR, in The Guardian, Men's Health, Forbes. He speaks about masculinity regularly at schools and conferences all around the world. We're going to be speaking with Andrew today about the subtle scripts that we have for men and boys in our culture today and how those scripts can be even more rigid than they were for previous generations. We're going to talk about why teenage boys are often so worried about being disrespected and dissing each other. We're going to look at sports and also at video games and the relationships between these things and masculinity. And we're going to go through two specific tips about how parents can get boys to open up more about their feelings and about what they're struggling with. So all that and more is coming up on the show today. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. So better boys, better men, the new masculinity that creates greater courage and emotional resiliency. Talk to me a little bit about this. What inspired this book? What got you interested in these topics? And how did you get here to be the person writing about it? Yeah, sure. So, you know, this has definitely been a snowball effect for me. If I really had to break it down, there really were these two reckonings that I've had in my own life. And the first one occurred when I stopped fighting as a boy. What happened was, I I won't go into the whole, you know, the whole drama of the backstory, but basically there'd been this really traumatizing fight that I'd been in. And there was this one with this neighborhood kid and it was a brutal fight. It really was. You know, I was like seven or eight years old. He was the same age. And it was not the kind of fight that ever occurred in our neighborhood. And, and this kid, this boy, had just, just humiliated me very deliberately. And so uh, later that day, I finally come home and I hear my oldest brother screaming and yelling at my mother. And he's talking about me and he's saying what a coward he is and what a black sheep, you know, about what a loser I am and, and all these things. And my mother is not stopping him. She's just kind of saying, well, maybe he'll grow out of it, which didn't exactly feel like a lot of bona fide support coming from my mother either. No, right. So as often happens, you know, is that you, you lean into the very thing thinking that that is going to bring you redemption. Yeah. That is going to, you know, deuce, that is going to 
bring you out of the shame. Right. And, and so that's what I did. I leaned into fighting a lot more than I even had. And so, yeah. and at one point um, I was in fifth or sixth grade and I'm in a fight with this kid on the blacktop at school. And for the first time, I really feel and really hear the sound of my fist against this kid's jaw. And it just like reverberates and it just, it's creates this like sickening sound, this like, you know, crack and I'm just nauseated by it. And after that day, you know, and after that fight, I just really put my fist down. I really did. And so that was really the first big reckoning where I started paying attention to, and I realized how much I didn't like the expectations of the script. You know, when I put my fist down and unclenched them, it kind of created this space to open up inside of me. And I started paying attention to just really how awful so many boys and so many men treated boys and, and the expectations that they had for what you, you know, if you were going to be accepted as a ascending man, what that meant. Yeah. What I wanted to do once I started paying attention and became aware of, of this, this, this script and the, and the expectation and the treatment, and the ways that it just didn't sit inside of me as acceptable, I started pushing back against it. You know, increasingly as I got older in really small ways, it became my own kind of little pitch battle. And then the second big reckoning comes many decades later when my, when my son is born. You know, it's hard to know yet, you know, at that point, of course, what your child is gonna become in terms of gender identity. Right. But I did know that if he was going to identify as male, that there was just a whole, a whole damn can of worms that was being opened again. It was like my past was catching up to me again, because uh, it's one thing, Andy, when you go through your life and you come to terms with your own personal, you know, your own personal fight. But when you've got somebody else coming in completely vulnerable and completely dependent on you, and you've got to start all over again, it suddenly brings up not just all the shit of, of your own past, which you really, which I had really to a large extent worked through, but more importantly, it raises all these questions of, well, I don't want to impose my past on what could potentially be somebody who identifies my child as a boy. Right. And yet I don't want him to be picked on and I don't want him to be bullied. On the other hand, I also don't want him to have to live with this script that in some ways is even more rigid than when I was a kid. Right. You know, there's all these big questions and that was, that was a really, really big struggle. And it's something that as a parent, you can't easily just work through when your child's very young because, you know, clearly you've got to be figuratively speaking, marching alongside your child and seeing where he is going because my son does identify as male and seeing where he is going and what the needs are and kind of trying to meet him where he is. And, and just, you know, it's a balancing act for any parent of, of a child of any gender orientation. It's always a balancing act when it comes to gender identity. But because I was so acutely aware of all these things from my own past and my own path, it became more of a balancing act of, and it still is and will continue to be not imposing you know, my own strong feelings, trying to separate those, meet him where he is and support him as much as I can with a healthy masculine identity that gives him far more access 
to the depth and breadth of his deeper emotional life. So that's really where the book came from. And it really began with a piece, an essay I had in the New York Times. Ah, okay. 2016, because all these things kind of were just in the, in the front of my mind. And I should add, I had started teaching at the university where I teach in, in Maryland, in Baltimore, um, a course called The Changing Face of Masculinity. And then I wrote this piece for the New York Times, which was about teaching this course. The point being about this piece in the Times is that it just explodes. You know, it takes uh, off, becomes, becomes yeah. viral. And so I start getting literary agents contacting me saying, have you ever thought about doing a book on this topic? And that's really the genesis of the book. You mentioned that the script in some ways is more rigid today than it was when you were a kid. What do you mean by that? I was, I was so hoping you were going to pick up on that. Yeah, I think this is a really important topic because this is what I mean by that. Um, so in some ways, we, we definitely have made a lot of progress with, with, with gender, you know, with, with masculinity. Yeah. Aren't things better now? Isn't this, yeah, yeah. we're living in the future, right? And men can be anything. And We are, we are, you know, we are, there are a lot more young men now, ascending men and boys who are, who want to talk about their deeper emotional lives and want to embrace, yeah. you know, their sensitivity. And yet there are also, these expectations that are in some ways even more hyper-masculine than what then say like when I was growing up. And what I mean by that is that there is a, an expectation of body appearance, for instance, that is far more rigid than it was when I was growing up. You know, when I was growing up, of course there were guys who worked out. Of course there were guys who were buffed and ripped. Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't nearly as extreme. It wasn't as cartoonish, really, and uh, it, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't the norm. If you did it, great, but you weren't being looked down upon, and you weren't considered, you know, less quote manly if you didn't have that, you know, the big pecs, the big biceps. If you weren't busting out of your shirt, you know, nobody cared. Right. You know, all body sizes, all body sizes were far more acceptable. The limitation, not surprisingly, of course, was for was for girls and women. But we are at a place now where, you know, all of the messages and images that boys and ascending men see, you know, in, in what they consume, whether it's on social media, whether it's in the movies with, with, with superheroes, action heroes, they are seeing one body shape and size. It is always these guys who are extremely buffed, busted, like I said, busting out of their shirts. And that yeah. sends the message that you are falling short as an ascending man if you don't have this. And there is far more body dysmorphia and, and eating issues with boys and men than there ever were in previous decades. And that is much more of an issue today. That is hypermasculinity. A feeling like this is my armor. I am impenetrable. So... So there's that, but it also is psychological. It's the idea that I am more I am more invulnerable if I am building my body up to be armored like this. And mm. that whole idea conflicts with the idea 
or makes it harder, there's more tension there to think to yourself, I want to embrace my, my sensitivity, which speaks to the idea of vulnerability. That's really what you're talking about, Andy. You know, when you talk about embracing your deeper emotional life, it's embracing the idea that, that you are a vulnerable human being. That makes it a lot harder. And there's an inner tension when, you know, the rest of your body, you are trying to make it as armored and as invulnerable as you possibly can appear. And you're trying to have that badass look. So yeah. that, that creates an inner dissonance, you know, the real cognitive dissonance in terms of, you know, on the one hand, you know, I want to appear this way, but on the other hand, I want to make myself really vulnerable. That is a really hard tightrope to walk for a lot of younger guys who haven't really figured, figured their shit out yet. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. There's all, there also are still vestiges. You know, there also are still a lot of vestiges that are very hypermasculine, not just about guys feeling like it's okay to ask for help, which is a huge one. Yeah. But the idea of feeling shame, if they are feeling anxiety or depression, and they can't get themselves out of that. Because again, that speaks to the idea of I've got to be able to handle everything on my own. Yeah. Those are two things that regardless of age, so many boys and men are still struggling with today. It's why we, we are seeing such so many spikes in anxiety and depression, you know, in boys and men. And clearly these suicide rates that are public health threats from boys and men that are only going up, they're not stabilizing and going down. So, you know, what these things I'll speak to are still these vestiges of a hypermasculine expectation that you've got to be able to handle everything on your own, which also means that there is something verboten about having to need to ask or seek for help. Mm, yeah, right. To not just have it all figured out. Exactly, because there still is an expectation that you should be able to, if you, that, that you really are competent as a man if you can figure it out yourself. It seems like conflated also with our archetypes about leaders or competent leaders to me, because, you know, I hear people talking a lot about like, wow, how someone's a really good leader because they're just so like calm under pressure and like uh, right. stoic or something. Yeah. And this idea that we can't display any emotion if we want to be kind of perceived as competent or masculine. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's why, for instance, when Barack Obama would give a talk and maybe once in a while he might tear up or when Joe Biden is giving this talk, you know, the day before his inauguration and it's at the, like the Delaware National Guard that's named after his yeah. son, and Joe Biden, of course, is getting very emotional. Whenever you see these kind of things, they blow up on social media. And even they blow up, not just in social media, but even in the mainstream media. And yeah. it becomes this really big deal. And what, what's yeah. in the subtext right. beneath that... I mean, Someone got emotional? <laughs> oh, my God. This is news, man. We have got to blast this out. Cancel whatever you got. This is better. Hey. I know, right? Exactly, exactly. So the fact, the subtext there is exactly that. It's that stop the press. Look at what we've got here, and what what the subtext beneath that really is. We're basically saying, does this compromise his integrity as a leader? And of course, you're going right. to have people pretty much 
as is the case with our politics, a lot of the conversation about contemporary masculinity is very polarized. You know, it very much is. And there's not a lot in between, at least in the public discourse. And that's really what happens when you see these guys crying, because it really becomes publicly, well, this just shows that he's in touch with his humanity. And that's what we want in a leader, somebody who is in touch right. with his feelings and isn't going to be some stoic jerk. And then, of course, you've got people on the other side saying, no, it shows vulnerability. It shows weakness, as if this is really furthering the conversation. And it's not. It's not that in the past that if a leader teared up, that a male leader would get a free pass. That wasn't the case. But the fact that we're still getting stuck on a biological process, and of course, that's what crying is. It's a biological process. It's a response, right, that's tied to our emotions often. The fact that we're still getting stuck on this shows that we're really not as far ahead sometimes as, as we'd like to think that we are. And that sends a message to a lot of thoughtful, insightful boys and young men, Yeah, which is, well, my God. If these guys who have all the status and cachet and power in the world, if they're getting vilified, why would I want to go when I can see other guys at school getting ragged on, you know, even sometimes even harassed for showing a little bit of sensitivity? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of that's the big question. And as a parent then. So shouldn't I be teaching my son how to really keep those emotions in check? and uh, not let anybody see those because that's right. we don't want them to get picked on. And we want them to be a good leader and be able to be the captain of the team and stuff like that and be popular. So don't we want to just stuff those emotions down kind of. And here's the thing, and this contributes to things like depression and self-numbing. When we swallow back certain kinds of feelings or certain kinds of emotions, everything else gets kind of swept under there too, because humans cannot compartmentalize certain kinds of feelings and then still have access to the other ones. It's unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Uh, What happens is that we end up starting to numb the other ones without realizing it as well. You know, you can see the writing on the wall with something like that, because when boys and young men are taught to start to, you know, swallow back some of the feelings that make them make them appear vulnerable, i.e. weak, then other things are going to go along with that. One of the emotions that we don't talk a lot about, but that we really don't necessarily encourage in boys and men is joy. Think about it. Outside of sporting events where you see unbridled joy, you know, when an individual or a team wins, especially a really big, (laughs) really big moment, right? You see where this is going, you see the joy in their faces and that's, we applaud that. Yeah. And outside of that, how often do you see guys walking down the street or guys in some store or guys, you know, in some other public setting who are not professional athletes or, or college athletes? How often do you see them just showing unbridled joy? I mean, it's it's a, it's it's a rhetorical question. We don't. And and if we do see a guy doing that, a lot of other guys, especially are going to look at him like, dude, like, what are you doing? You know, like, like, like dial it back, man. Because we do not, we do not even encourage joy. The things that we really still don't encourage in boys and men are integral to their humanity. It's integral. You know, the more that we learn to suppress and swallow back those emotions, the more that we are are self-numbing. And that, that is taking us on the path to depression. And that is a big part of the reason why it is, it becomes so hard 
as guys get more and more used to doing that, it gets so hard to help them re-engage with and tap into their deeper emotional lives. And it's why when a lot of guys go into therapy, if they do, a lot of therapists who work with men know that for a lot of guys who have taught themselves to really push down and suppress a lot of their emotional lives beyond anger, they know that they've got to start with them by helping them understand when you have a feeling other than anger, where is that registering in your body? Because that is a lot easier for guys to help them to learn what is the feeling in your body, and then they can learn to attach an emotion to that. Uh, yeah. Start paying attention to it without the judgment of knowing what emotion it is. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's because a lot of guys, and this is, gets to be true, especially of men, as they get older, they've had a lifetime of really swallowing back their emo- much of their emotional life. Yeah. They can more easily explain to somebody, okay, so now that you tell me, now that you're explaining to me that there are these physical sensations, I can say, okay, it's in my left arm. I can say there's a tightness in my gut. Uh, I, can say, I, can, I can say I'm feeling this twinge or, or this tightening in my shoulders. So, okay, yeah. so let's try to talk about what is the feeling? What is it now that you feel when you have that physical sensation? So you have to kind of like, you have to work backwards and you've got to start off yeah. with something that these guys can eat more easily identify, not the feelings, but what is the physical sensation first? And then we can start to say, okay, what is the feeling you have when you get that sensation? So that for yeah. a lot of guys, a lot of, a lot of therapists who work with men know, you know, this is a place that, that is easier for them to start with. Yeah, 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 right. And it feels safer. And for a lot of men, that's an important thing. They've got to feel that they've got permission. It's got to feel safe that they can go there. You talk a little bit about perfectionism. And you have some interesting research in here, looking at some changes in perfectionism. And this this study is showing that when it came to a need to appear perfect in their socialized contemporary college students scores rose by 33% compared to the late 80s. Yeah. That's a pretty big difference. It is. It's huge. It's huge. And and so, you know, what we're really talking about with social perfection um and even though it can sometimes look a little bit different between those who identify as male and those who identify as female, there okay, still yeah. is a lot of pressure with social perfection. So, of course, what we're talking about there, you know, is beneath that really social anxiety. And it's, it's the idea of feeling that you can't say or do things that are going to make you seem that you are not conforming with the expected norms. You can't take a step or utter a word that is going to make you look like you're a bit of an outlier. And those parameters have just gotten a lot smaller over time, you know, and, and there's a, there's an egregious conformity to that, you know, because most kids growing up today learn what those norms are and the cool kids who are really dictating them and perpetuating them. And then everyone else is expected to kind of fall in line. And so you know that there's certain ways you've got to talk and lots of things you can't say 
and how you say them. And then you've got to be really careful about the way you're coming off. An example would be, you know, you don't appear out in public either not being engaged with somebody or not on your phone. You always need to seem like you're connected. Yeah. Because if you're not, if you're not engaged, at least on your phone, then you just, you look like a loser. You look like you're, you know, you're, you're disconnected and you're not in the loop. And, and of course that just perpetuates FOMO, right? The whole fear of missing out. It's that idea that you've always got to look like you are connected to others because God forbid you should be sitting there, you know, eating alone. You know, one of the things I used to do with one of the courses I used to teach was I do in a lot of the courses I teach, especially these seminars, I have students doing these little out of class experiments. And I would say to students, go eat in the dining hall, sit by yourself, sit there without your books and, or, or your laptop and sit there without your phone and just sit there and have your meal. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. It's this idea that something so small and subtle is part of this idea of what perfection looks like. You always should be connected. Yeah. You know, and another, another example of that is always having playing music, you know, either having the headphones on or the earbuds in, because that is another way of feeling like you are socially connected in some way. To be, you know, to be spending time by yourself, number one, and then to be doing that in a way that you're not engaging. I mean, that's more atypical than it is typical. And that's a form of social perfection. So isn't a lot of the masculinity related to biology because the testosterone, you get some guys kind of just are more high testosterone and they're more into all that masculinity, you know, playing football and competing and stuff. And others are more just kind of low testosterone and not so alpha. Well, you know, it's funny. I actually, I have an entire um, chapter in my book about the wiring of masculinity. You know, I talk about, you know, the wiring in the brain and how, how male and female brains are 98% structurally similar, actually, as it turns out. Recent, more recent studies have shown. Yeah, it's that, that there's actually most human brains from, from you know, thousands of imagings that imaging studies have been done. Most human brains are what researchers are now calling a mosaic, where structurally are similar, similar structural kind of components in, in both set, you know, what we consider the male and the female brain and that 98% of most, most human brains are really interchangeable and that yeah. they're very similar. When you talk about testosterone, as I talk about in the book, yes, there are some guys that might have a little bit higher testosterone, but what's, what studies show is that even guys who seem like they're betas, their testosterone levels can be far higher than even the alpha guys in situations where they feel that their status as men or as ascending men is challenged or threatened. So there's a guy named Robert Sapolsky at Stanford. Yeah. And so much of his career has been on, on studies like this with testosterone. Yeah. And I mentioned him a lot in that chapter. And he's done some great studies. And he pulls on some really amazing studies that have been done, that have been done among primates. And I bring in other research that has been done with humans that mirrors this. And what they found was that 
even though the alpha males in certain primate groups might be imposing their will so that they can be the top dog, so to speak, and have the most status in their primate group, when these other male primates far lower down in the pecking order, when they feel like their status is being threatened by other guys who are of the similar status as them or lower, their testosterone levels can shoot up easily way higher than the top alpha male. Mm -hmm. So what they have found is that testosterone levels typically are dependent on the context of the situation in which a male feels that his masculine status in the group is threatened. So what that means is that even a guy who who can appear to be really, you know, wimpy, his testosterone levels can shoot through the ceiling if and when he is with other guys, for instance, and he feels like he's being disrespected Uh. and he feels that his status is being threatened in the group. His testosterone levels can easily be that of one of these, you know, roid raging football players he can he can go there. Yeah. He can go to the same place with his testosterone levels. Interesting. Yeah. Even with some football players, you know, you bring up the idea of you know some of these kind of football players. Some of them do have higher testosterone levels. But research has also shown they don't all have these off the chart testosterone levels. Right. What happens is that when they get onto the field, yeah, and when they're, when they're gaming up, that is when when they feel that their status as men and as football playing men yeah. is potentially under siege, that is when their testosterone levels start shooting up. Yeah. So that really changes this conversation about testosterone. Hey, we're here with Andrew Reiner talking about masculinity today and how to get boys to open up about their feelings and what they're struggling with. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. But when you have guys who are the kind of guys who are, are going to be walking down the street and are going to be ready to roll with some other guy because yeah. they might look at him or they might look at him the wrong way, right. that is not rooted in biology. What that's rooted in is a guy being taught at a very young age of having a very thin line between feeling like you're being disrespected and willing to throw punches. There's a type of competition and a lack of support that exists amongst a lot of guys, whether they're athletes or even gamers, that doesn't exist for a lot of girls and women. One thing that you can do when sons comes to you and they're feeling frustration, they're feeling anger, they're feeling, uh, they look or are acting a little bit down, you know, instead of asking them what went wrong and coming back with parental advice or solutions, try to lead instead of, instead of with that, with that reflex, try to lead instead with empathy. Mm-hmm. Try to find out what happened. You don't have to even lean into the emotions initially, but you could say, well, what happened today that made you feel this way? And if you can get your son to just talk about the thing that happened, something somebody said or did yeah. that was frustrating or or, or, you know, or made him feel angry or made him feel down. Lead with empathy instead of trying to come up with a solution. Say, you know what? I know if somebody said that to me or somebody did that to me, I'd feel really frustrated or my feelings would be really hurt or I'd feel really down about that. Yeah. But that happened to me. That's a way to normalize feelings for boys. 
it sends the message it's okay to feel frustrated or sad or hurt by what this person said or did to you. It normalizes that yeah. without having to necessarily have the big conversation. When we show empathy to boys, it normalizes emotional conversations. It, it gives them permission and validation to feel what they're feeling. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.